0: We are Encountering Silence.
1: Encountering Silence is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you.
2: Please visit patreon.com forward slash encountering silence to learn more about how you can be part of the circle and share in our efforts to bring silence into our all too noisy world.
0: Essayist and journalist Kaya Oakes is the author of The Nuns Are All Right, a new generation of believers, seekers, and those in between, Radical Reinvention, an unlikely return to the Catholic Church, Slanted and Enchanted, the evolution of indie culture, as well as a book of poetry, Telegraph. Her next book, Medieval how women who don't fit in are changing the world is forthcoming from Broadleaf Books in 2021. Kaya's essays and journalism have appeared in The New Republic, Slate, Foreign Policy, The Guardian, The Washington Post, Sojourners, National Catholic Reporter, Commonweal, Religion Dispatches, Tricycle, On Being, America, and many other publications. She was the co-founder of the award-winning arts and culture magazine Kitchen Sink and is currently on the editorial board of the groundbreaking religion website Killing the Buddha. She teaches creative nonfiction, narrative journalism, expository, and research writing at the University of California, Berkeley. You can find her online at www.oakstown.org, that's O-A-K-E-S-T-O-W-N. Dot org Kaya Oaks, welcome to encountering silence. So we'd like to begin our conversation by asking about your relationship with silence. Uh, how has silence been a part of your life whether in the past in the present or if you want to be predictive in the future?
3: Okay, so I am the fourth of five children and so I am seven years younger than my closest older sibling and seven years older than my younger sibling. So I have a 14 year bumper and I was born in a gap. Um, So I uh, had a very strange childhood where I was alone a lot of the time and my father liked to travel. We had a 1971 Volkswagen van and would road trip all over the country and up into Canada and down into Mexico and so I was I and it was just me and him a lot and he was a great um, talker um, being in the Celtic um, tradition (laughs) Um, so what I learned on those trips and being alone a lot of the time in my childhood and yet also being in a big family at the same time was when to talk and when not to talk. So silence became a companion from a very young age, but also have experienced as an adult the the verb, the silencing that happens a lot to women and to women scholars in religion and academia, like literal silencing that has happened to people like Elizabeth Johnson. Um, where the Vatican silenced them, on my end, it has not been as dramatic as for some mutual friends of ours who lost jobs or, you know, couldn't publish books. But there have been times when I was told not to speak on issue XYZ. And so silence has been both a friend and an enemy. And so I've experienced it as both of those things.
1: I love learning more about about your childhood and you know sibling dynamics are always interesting right family dynamics in general I have three older siblings myself and I'm wondering you know in navigating that silence as as a young one if there was ever a time where it was coupled with place or location Um, and if you could share maybe a story about that Sure.
3: So I was born and raised in Northern California, where I still live. And I come from a family with a really deep uh, relationship with the natural world. And so we spent a lot of time in the redwoods and at the coast, the Northern California coast um, is very important to me as a landscape, but spiritually, it's a silent place in the sense that if you've spent any time at like the trappist monastery up in uh, far northern california with the trappist sisters up there that the silence is the silence of of nature rather than the silence of the indoors (laughs) for lack of a better word And so I have a lot of memories of that, but of being a a child and being in this particular coastal landscape and and hearing what uh, the conversations between trees that happen when it's windy, um, the ocean coming and going, um, water in general, like whether we have a drought climate. And so what does it sound like when, the landscape is very dry and very parched and so those are my kind of like memories so they're very grounded in that particular landscape
2: yeah so it's interesting because it makes me think of kind of two things the question that cassie just asked about place and then your question about learning how to be when to talk and when not to talk those it feels like to me that that those play have a place in your work as a writer. And I'm wondering if, if you can think of places where that kind of shows up, if you could flesh that out a little bit, because from knowing your writing, I, I feel like in a couple places, and I really wish I tagged something here, but just responding to your, your answer, I feel like I, I can almost call out places that I felt place spoke to you and also learning to listen well spoke to you. And I I feel that in your writing I, I I get it off the page. I'm wondering if you have any response to that.
3: Um. Thanks for noticing that. Before I was a, I think I I was simultaneously becoming an essayist and a nonfiction writer while I was in grad school studying poetry. So ironically, I began graduate school as a poet and and I have a degree in poetry, but I actually came out of it as an essayist. <laughs> So I should probably get my money back, but <laughs> too late for that. Um, but uh, but what you learn in, in the study of poetry, and I know you all talk about poetry, and you mentioned Padraig Otuama's work, which I got to meet him last summer. We were both teaching at the Glenn workshop, and he's just a real delight. Um, but I think what Padraig's work is very grounded in place as well. And maybe there's something about people who are interested in this kind of mm, space between the secular and the sacred that you're always paying attention to where you are and, and who you're with or who you're not with. And poetry speaks really well to that. So I learned the craft of poetry, of the caesura, you know, the pause of the enjammed line of, you know, alliteration and um, constants, asness, all that fun stuff. And then I took that into journalism and nonfiction writing. So it was a sort of organic process. Friend of mine who has been reading the book, I'm writing in progress, who's a poet herself has, you know, often asked me like, Oh, do you think you'll go back to writing it? No, I won't because I'm just doing it in a different disguise. Hmm. But poetry is a genre that very much appreciates the space between words.
2: Yeah, I'm glad you said that. Okay, that makes so much more sense to me. Your background as a poet, I didn't realize you you studied poetry and then became an essayist. Like, so that, all right, thank you. I'm not crazy. (laughs) I felt like I was reading that on the page with you. So, yeah, clearly.
3: There's a book of poetry that I wrote that is thankfully out of print. It's terrible. But it was the publisher (laughs) that went under. But you can still find it, like, on Amazon, you know, for like two cents or whatever but it's sort of like as it's like meeting yourself from 20 years 30 years ago and going god i was really embarrassing so, <laughs> sincere, so full of feelings and like just really gushing it all out on the page so there
0: there's a mm-hmm. pagan writer named isaac bonowitz he's passed away now but he mentioned in the revision of his first book or the, the, the second edition or whatever, he mentioned, you know, writing a book and having it published, it will follow you around like a puppy dog forever. Every author I know has some experience like that. I, as, as I mentioned to you before we started recording, I have just recently read Radical Reinvention and I, I love the book. I love its honesty. I love its vulnerability. I love how candid you are about not wanting to be vulnerable. Uh, there's, you know, the book is just very rich on many, many levels. And, and I think it's such a wonderful articulation about the tensions of being a, a Catholic in today's world. And I think you really you really mind that beautifully. But since this is a silence podcast, I'd like to kind of zero in on, on how silence shows up in the book. And I, I just kind of want to go back it's just a very brief quote here. When you were talking about kind of your journey back towards faith or towards faith, I'm, I'm not sure what's the best way to articulate that. And you mentioned kind of looking at other faith opportunities or traditions other than the Catholicism that was your, your faith of origin. And you write, I, I couldn't deal with the awkward silence of the Quakers. Meditation was fine, but for me, Buddhism, itself lacked anything to work toward other than nothingness. And so I'm curious, obviously you wrote that, what, over a decade ago now. So I'm curious with your journey through RCIA, through Catholicism, through getting plugged in with the, for lack of a better word, the progressive community within Catholicism, how has this impacted your appreciation of silence in, in a spiritual context?
3: So, first of all, I want to apologize to any Quakers or Buddhists.
0: <laughs> we I'm, do have them on our show. Yeah, so you know. I
3: assume your audience leans heavily that way. Um, <laughs> so, first of all, my friend Micah and Micah Bales and his wife, Faith Kelly, are the co-pastors of Berkeley Friends community. And I do go there for before the pandemic. I would sometimes go there for worship and felt very welcomed. And no, it didn't bother me. (laughs) I, I grew up a lot. When I wrote the book, I was 39 and I'm 49 now. So, you know, that's a big growth spurt emotionally. And... I think that what I found in Catholicism was this treasure of monasticism, which you're not taught about as a Catholic child, especially if you're Gen X. I would assume that you don't get it now either. I don't have any Catholic young people in my life, like under children. So my nieces and nephews are Jewish. And so that's a whole different story. But they I don't know whether they're like if maybe some some of you would know is that even in the catechesis, I didn't know what monks were until I was 40, 35, 40. I knew what Buddhist monks were because I live in the Bay Area, but um there are monastic communities that are close to here and I didn't know they existed, like the kamaldolese hermitage um, in Big Sur. So I think that I found that treasure and I got very interested in Carthusians uh, because I read this book by Nancy Klein McGuire called An Infinity of Little Hours, which I read maybe 10 years ago. Is that about how old it is? And then that documentary came out into great silence. And I got really sucked into that this, the narrative of the Carthusian life. Would I wanna be a Carthusian? No way, right? But I love their vision of the world and their the, their theology. And um, I have this tattoo of this word quies, which is, um, you know, leisure that is occupied, activity that is tranquil from St. Bruno. And I got that in sort of a spate of like overly optimistic. <laughs> think <laughs> I would be able to be more of a monastic in my, a lay monastic, but I, I, would struggle with it just like everyone. But yes, the, the mine of the rich mine of Catholic monastics and uh, the desert Amas and Abbas and all that. I didn't know any of that because I was brought up in the seventies Catholic church and we didn't, you don't find that stuff out until you go to college and study theology unless you stumble into it. And I didn't study theology in college. So yeah, it's a great treasure that the Catholic church has successfully buried under a bushel basket and um, doesn't really ever tell people about unless you get lucky.
1: And Kaya, you also have an essay in the book about Merton um, called What Am I Living For? Lessons from the Life and Writings of Thomas Merton. So how did you come across Merton and, and um, how did he inspire you?
3: It was just luck again Cassidy it was like I was doing Catholic Church 101 on my own you know in my 40s and or or late 30s early 40s probably mid to late 30s and my parents had a really good friend who grew up Catholic and then he was um, unfortunately a victim of clergy abuse and so he is no longer practicing, but he loves Thomas Merton. He returns to Thomas Merton as a consolation in some ways for what he went through. And he said, you should read um, Seven Story Mountain, which is not my favorite Merton book in retrospect. You know, Merton himself was like, it's kind of like me talking about my poetry book a few minutes ago. Like, I don't know who wrote that. What does he say? The man who wrote The Seven Story Mountain is dead, right? Mm -hmm. So, but then he said, my family friend said, no, you should read Seven Story Mountain, but what you should really read is The Sign of Jonas. Mm -hmm. Because that's about what happens after you go into the monastery, and when it gets hard and you struggle. And that book really meant a lot to me. so yeah, so it was it was through this friend of my family that I discovered Merton, and um, last year got to go to the Merton conference for the first time, which was a real joy because everybody is really delightful and strange,
2: <laughs> which makes it delightful. We like to we like to keep Merton weird. Keep Merton weird. There you go. Yeah, <laughs> he, the Portland of mon- monastics. <laughs>
0: Our conversation will continue after this brief moment of silence. Please take a break with us and be present in this short period of silence.
1: I'm struck by this, this idea of like, you know, we've talked about physical landscape and this also this alongside this idea of both religious landscape, but also monastic landscape. There's something really similar or reminiscent there. And I mean, you can take this wherever you want to go with it. One direction I'm wondering is, is that a landscape that you try to cultivate and or create when you write? And is that something that that feeds your writing?
3: A few years ago, I did a onstage conversation event with uh, Richard Rodriguez, if you know his work, and <laughs> he's so great, and he's just so funny and charming. And he said, "Kaya, do you pray when you write?" <laughs> and I said, "No." <laughs> 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 and I think his work, I love his book, Darling, which is his spiritual autobiography. I just think it's so brilliant. He is somebody who prays when he writes, but I think for me it's more about kind of I don't have rituals for writing. I don't get up every morning and write in my journal. I don't keep a journal. I don't I don't wait for the muse to strike. I just try to like write a little bit every day even if it's just tweets um, and emails. And then when I really, I I, I think that one thing I've discovered in the last decade or so is that the authentic self, which Merton talks about a lot, that is where God finds us, is that kind of, is it Matthew 26, like go into your room and pray in secret. And like that has sort of become how I survived the Trump years spiritually. Mm -hmm was to have that verse sort of like going, like they can define Christianity this way, but I'm always gonna define it as a private relationship that I publicly write about sometimes. And so when I'm really groove like in my groove with writing, I do, I do not necessarily feel like I'm like being something's beaming down through me. But that I'm in touch with that, you know, that that I am the great I am. I was watching, just thinking about gospel music at this time of year, because normally there's this uh, Oakland Interfaith Gospel Choir does their big Christmas show, and it's so much fun. It's a choir with 100 people of all different ethnicities, sexual identities, gender orientations, different religions, and yet they sing in these amazing harmonies. And that's one of those songs they always do. So I'm, I'm missing that Christmas tradition this year. But I think that is what you're talking about, Cassidy. It's like not necessarily sitting in prayer in writing, but being open to being in touch with something greater than our
0: ego. Which sounds like prayer to me. Yeah, <laughs> right. But maybe it's a broader way of thinking about prayer.
2: It's funny. Um, I'm I'm thinking of your comment, Kaya, that you that you said, "Oh, I was young when I said this," and you know, no offense to all you Quakers and Buddhists out there, uh, but it's it's funny because what I hear now is you unpacking what Merton and the monastics and uh, other this deeper tradition, this deeper theology, than more than just rules, more than just dogma, that there's this other space, this other moment that's deeper than ego. Uh, deeper than we can define. And so I'm wondering, I know that your most recent book is about uh, women who are changing in the world. And I know that you also, we've had some conversation in the past about Julian of Norwich. Um, it seems like like women monast- um, monastics and mystics, anchorites, others, have talked about this space that you're talking about right now, this space that's bigger than ego, bigger than how we are defined by culture and society. And I'm curious as to, uh, is that place now make more sense of maybe some of the Quaker silence and Buddhist silence maybe for you?
3: Yeah. I think Julian wasn't the companion I expected to meet in this part of my life, but, you know, I did. So I was asked to write the introduction to a new volume, just, you know, a reprint of her revelations a couple years ago I had written this essay for on being on medieval mystics and women and like different life eras and based on which went viral in which you don't get to do when you write about religion (laughs) I I
2: remember when it did I read that article when it was going everywhere yeah
3: yeah it was super fun and then of course on being decided to start stop publishing essays right after that. so um but (laughs) what I discovered was, and Christiana Peterson, who was one of my students at the Glenn workshop, who's a wonderful writer, as a Mennonite and has a book on meeting mystics. And she talks about that idea too, is like that, that kind of like treasure that you don't discover. Because again, I think as Catholics, like we, we have this really rich liturgical tradition. We have a really rich intellectual tradition and artistic tradition, but we're really embarrassed and kind of cringe to talk about prayer and spirituality. It's very strange. It's like this kind of place that we don't like to go. And the fact that Julian is a saint in the Anglican tradition and not in the Catholic one is very <laughs> revealing about right. her place as a kind of unexpected defiant woman in the sense that choosing, it's not just choosing silence but choosing solitude um, which the mystics do and, solita- and they become solitaries Fenton Johnson has a wonderful essay in Harper's a few years ago about this that I found very inspirational about the difference between being a solitary and you can be a solitary and be married and live in community, but you prefer finding God in, in solitude. And Julian tried to do that, but people kept coming to the window because she had so much to offer. And I think that's what we're doing hundreds of years later. We're still kind of like peeking in her window and getting advice from her. Um, But she became a companion for this part of my life, because I was asked to write about her in the process of learning more about her and reading her more in depth. I started to just kind of get to know that mystical spirituality a lot better. Um, And again, like this great treasure of Catholicism that we don't Talk about, you know, how many times, if you're Catholic, have you heard a sermon about Hildegard, St. John of the Cross, Julian, you know, you know, zero, right? So like in most cases, and even contemporary mystics like don't get, so it's it's weird. I don't know why we have this embarrassment about talking about prayer in the Catholic church that I find very strange.
1: Would you say that it's, it's these kinds of, these saints that you're talking about, St. John on the cross and Julian and and whatnot, and kind of this continual uncovering um, that you seem to be doing within the Catholic church. Would you say that's one of the things that, that keeps it alive for you and keeps it alive in your life?
3: Yes, absolutely. And I think again, the reason that a lot of people Leave. I mean, there are obvious reasons people leave the Catholic Church: the abuse crisis, the misogyny, the homophobia, the all that stuff, the sort of body issues. But when we talk about the spiritual side of things, it's just this, this, this kind of um, everlasting flame that, like, the church has sort of like hidden somewhere. It's like it's you took this candle and put it like as far away as possible so it was really hard to find and then the people who find it are like oh i got it i can i can see everything now but it took me so long to get here and that's a shame but i was lucky to find it now i've also been lucky in that because i chose to write about religion people you know came to me and said oh you should read this you should read that i have access to the graduate theological union i get to take classes there you know, and so I, I'm very privileged in a way that a lot of people are not, that they don't have people kind of walking them through this and pointing stuff out to them. So I try to pass that along as best as I can.
1: There's a lot of weirdness to the saints that's really appealing and attractive. And I use the word weird in a positive way that that's just really a, a lot enlivening and can really wake up um, a lot of the goodness in the Catholic Church that again this weirdness is just frequently covered up over and over again
3: yes because it's it's frightening in the way that someone like julian is frightening because she's chosen this path that's you know so difficult for us to understand and recognize and yet you know what do we commodify how many apps do i have on my phone that are for meditation and how many retreats do people go on where they pay to stay in a cell (laughs) and like, I mean, maybe they get a massage at the end of the day, which she definitely did not. But um, but that it's kind of like we're being marked, what she sought out through her methodology, which is what was available to her and women and other people at the time, of being sealed in and choosing the, choosing the anchor hold, choosing that kind of radical solitude is something today that people will pay to get, you know? And like, especially in the pandemic, how many of your friends have said like, I cannot get a minute alone or I've not seen anybody in eight months. It's sort of like we're either or, but there, nobody is in between. And so the spiritual crisis of the moment is really, how do you handle that? Which is a whole different subject. But I agree, we need the wild, weird stories of saints and holy people. And like, you know, Jesus was a freak, like he was so strange. And I think we don't talk about that again, like in a way that people would recognize us, like this is a really eccentric message that he's sending us. And can we sit with that and say, this is strange and different and countercultural and uh, yeah. So I'm sort of going on a tangent there, Cassie, but like, I think you get the point. I love that, I love that.
0: (laughs) I'd like to circle back to, uh, you know, your your musing on the kind of the dearth of popular spirituality in contemporary Catholicism, kind of the, the awkwardness about even teaching prayer or talking about prayer. Uh, I I wrote about this on my blog a while back, that the catechism, only about 10% of the catechism is devoted to prayer, whereas like 40% is devoted to morality, quote unquote. And so I'm curious, just, you know, uh, thinking of Karl Rahner and his famous soundbite, you know, the Christian of the future will be a mystic or will not exist. And I think we're already seeing the not exist part. You know, the way especially younger people are just saying no to the institution. No, thank you. Do you think there's a connection between the church's hostility? And I'm choosing that word advisedly. The church's hostility to women, hostility to queer people, you know, hostility to to people of other faiths. Not across the board, of course. I mean, there are some amazing Catholics and other Christians who are doing creative interfaith and interreligious work. But there's also a lot of hostility. And then that aridity when it comes to prayer or unwillingness to engage with prayer. And, And what I'm also thinking about, this is a big question, so play with it however you want. But I'm also thinking about the body that, you know, hostility to women, hostility to queer people, this all really boils down to kind of a Jansenist hostility towards the body. And it seems to me that that when prayer is, is taken away from the body, prayer ceases to exist. So I'm just curious if you have any thoughts about how all of that might connect together and what that might mean for us here in the year 2020, 2021, as we try to be you know, people with a with a living spirituality.
3: That's a good question. Uh, the question of embodied prayer and embodiment is one that I think is connected to what I discovered when I wrote The Nuns Are All Right that you mentioned earlier, Kevin, which is that what we're seeing is, and then the pandemic has accelerated this, I think, what we're seeing is a much more individualized DIY kind of like bespoke (laughs) um, kind of version of faith. Like it's not just the mix and match, the, the spiritual mix and match, but it's more kind of like I'm forced to be alone. I've lost my community. I can't be with my community of prayer community if you have one in the first place and so how do you pray alone and like how do you feel that like what are your physical i don't think we talk about that either it's like that line in i don't know which gospel it is but it's like i talked about this in radical reinvention i think where jesus like when he meets people and he's moved in his guts like the word is like greek and it's like i i think it's like it's literally like guts right my editor tried to change it to something else and i was like nope we're keeping guts." and like that moment and i had a friend who was a former carmelite and she would talk about being in church and, and being pierced by the word and like feeling that sensation when like something in the reading like pierces your heart and like physically you feel like that and so much of meditation, I think people overcomplicate it because they focus so much on like, I'm not allowed to itch; it's bad to move. Um, if I don't sit absolutely still, I'm not actually meditating. I can't do it on the train while I'm commuting. I have to have my special meditation space with my cushion that costs fifty dollars. Yeah. <laughs> like, You know, has to be over with a specific kind of grain. Like, that's, we've we've over-compartmentalized. So, like, it's good to compartmentalize in the sense that religion should be about you finding the best path to getting in touch with this stuff. But there's there's not a one-size-fits-all formula, which is where the Catholic Church fails a lot, as you're talking about, in terms of its focus on too much on the body, like, to the degree that it becomes an obsessive, like, uh, puritanical kind of, like, censorship of the self, like the the body and the soul have to be separate in some ways. Um, to if you want to be a good quote unquote Catholic. But I think that the other traditions, the kind of wilder, older traditions that got sucked up into I was looking at, you know, I was I always hear on social media, like we need to go back to the early church like and and you go to Ireland or England and what do you see on early churches is you know Sheila Nagigs, like this picture of a woman who's like holding her vulva open because she's giving birth like it's really physical right and then, and just that kind of imagery was erased and but it's still there somewhere like deep down right um like hopkins says there lives the dearest freshness deep down things like so i think that that we need to bring the body and the soul back together and the protestant denominations in america at least are doing a better job of that but they're losing membership too right and that's primarily because younger people just feel like they're not being met as individuals and so it's a struggle it's a real struggle and i think we're going to come out of the pandemic both more individualistic and more community-minded and it's going to be people are going to be so lost like do i want to go back to church and if i do am i going to be able to find one you know it's going to be complicated
0: this is the end of the first part of a two-part interview the conclusion to this interview will be released in our next episode We are Encountering Silence. I'm Carl McCollman. To learn more about me, please visit CarlMcColeman.com.
1: I'm Cassidy Hall. Find out about my work at
0: cassidyhall.com.
2: I'm Kevin Johnson. My current website is kevinmichaeljohnson.com.
0: Please visit the podcast's website at encounteringsilence.com where you can learn more about each of our episodes and find links to purchase books and other resources we discuss on the podcast. When you make a purchase through a link we provide, the podcast receives a small affiliate commission from amazon.com. Thank you for doing so. Please also visit patreon.com forward slash encountering silence to learn more about how you can be part of our circle of supporters and share in our efforts to bring meaningful conversations about silence to our all-too-noisy world. Thank you.